the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. to change your attitude, change your life's conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. The pressures and activities of daily life can wreak havoc on a love relationship. Expressing emotion on a consistent basis can fall to the side, and the things that say I love you don't get said or don't get through. According to today's guest, Dr. Gary Chapman, each one of us has a primary love language, which when spoken, fills up our emotional love tank. And when we learn to speak a partner's primary love language, the love we share will be exciting beyond anything we have ever felt before. Dr. Chapman is here today to help us identify, understand, and learn how to speak a partner's primary love language. He is a speaker and counselor and the author of the Five Love Languages series. Welcome, Dr. Chapman. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Joan. It's great to be with you. Dr. Chapman, I'm, I'm so happy that you're here because this is really such an important topic, especially in light of the current divorce rate statistics. And in the opening of your book, The Five Love Languages, you write about a question that I believe so many people want answered. And I believe they want this answered because many who are part of a failed relationship really did try. I mean, they gave it everything that they had. And when the relationship ended, they didn't really understand what went wrong. So I want to begin with that question. What happens to love after the wedding? Well, I think, Joan, you know, we've studied the in-love phenomena uh, where we are swept along with these powerful emotions. Uh, But the average lifespan of that high is two years, and we come down off the high. But many, many couples are not aware of that. I was not aware of that. Mm -hmm. So when I came down off the high, and my wife and I had been dating for two years before we got married. So I came down pretty soon after the honeymoon. And I, you know, our differences emerged and we began arguing with each other. And before long, we didn't like each other. And I think this is what happens. Uh, people are not anticipating that they will come down off the high. They think if they have the real thing, it's going to last forever. Mm-hmm. And the reality is when we come down off the high, we have to now learn how to intentionally love each other or what I call the love tank, the emotional love tank, will get empty. And when the love tank is empty and we begin arguing with each other and we say hurtful things, in a while, we don't even want to be with each other. So I I think that's what happens in, in many, many marriages. Doctor, is it enough for one person in the relationship to have his or her love tank be filled you know, sometimes there are you have the one partner who reads these books and who wants to really make the relationship work and the other person doesn't. So is that enough to make it last? Well, one person cannot create a good marriage, but one person can greatly influence their spouse. But let's face it, we are influencing each other, either negatively or positively, almost every day by the things we say and things we do. But because we so deeply need love, when you speak the love language of the other person, and you do it consistently, you are beginning to get through to them that you genuinely love them. And there's something inside of them that responds to that. Uh, and they and they tend to respond then to, to speak your language. Now, you're exactly right. Often, 
one person reads my book and, mm-hmm. they, and they learn their love language, learn the spouse's love language. They try to speak it and nothing happens. At least they don't see anything happening. And what I say is this, after you have spoken their language consistently every week for say two or three months, then you can start making requests of them. They may not automatically respond, but if you start saying to them at that juncture, honey, could you, uh, you think you could vacuum the floor for me this afternoon? There's a good chance they'll do it because they have been feeling love from you. Mm-hmm. And now you're giving them guidance as to what they could do if they choose to do. And many times they will respond to your request. So you can really teach the other person to speak your love language, even when they haven't read the book, have no idea what's going on, but you are influencing them by the power of love. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone will respond, Joan. You know, it's, it's no question about it. There are some people, you can love them in their love language, but their wires are so crossed or they have such anger or hurt or depression or whatever uh, that they don't respond. But I do believe it's the most powerful thing you can do to influence your spouse. Speak their love language. I want to talk about these five love languages briefly. The first one, quality time, what does that mean? It means giving your spouse your undivided attention. It's not simply being in the same room, you know, sitting on the couch watching television. Someone else has your attention. I'm talking about sitting on the couch, TV off, looking at each other, talking, interfacing, or taking a walk down the road and talking with each other or going out to eat, assuming that you talk to each other, which is not always the case. Uh, But it's giving the person your undivided attention. Really, it doesn't always have to involve conversation. It can be uh, planting a flower garden together or some other activity. But the important thing about the activity is not the activity. It's that we are doing this together. So it's really focusing your attention on each other. So, Doctor, the next one, words of affirmation. That's when someone needs to hear verbal compliments in order to feel loved. Yes. You look nice in that outfit. Really appreciate what you did. You know one of the things I like about you are just the words, I love you, Mm -hmm. you know, spoken sincerely. Uh, And for some people, words are powerful. In fact, there's an ancient Hebrew proverb that says life and death is in the power of the tongue. We can kill each other or we can give each other life by the way we talk to each other. So, yes, for some people, if they don't receive affirming words, they don't feel loved. You can give them gifts and other things, but those are meaningless to them. What they're looking for is verbal affirmation. Okay, so, Doctor, you just mentioned the next one, and that's gifts. What does that encompass? It's actually giving gifts to the person. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's universal to give gifts as an expression of love. We have never discovered a culture where gift giving is not an expression of love. It's universal. The gift says, they were thinking about me. Look what they got for me. And it doesn't have to be expensive. You know, you don't have to have money to give gifts. You can get a free flower in your backyard. But, you know, it's a matter of thinking about the person and what they might like Mm -hmm. and then choosing to get that, whether you purchase it or whether you find it as you're walking on a trail. Uh, But you give them something as an expression, I was thinking about you when I was away. Okay, doctor. So the fourth language, then, acts of service. Doing things for the other person that you know they would like for you to do. In a marriage, that is such things as cooking a meal. That's a huge act of service. Or washing dishes, vacuuming floors, mm-hmm. walking the dog, changing the baby's diaper. You know, anything that you know the other person would like. You know the old saying, Joan, actions speak louder than words. Right. It's true for these people. It's not true for everyone, but it's true for these people. If this is their love language, actions will speak louder than words. And the final one, physical touch. Physical touch. In a marriage relationship, that is such things as holding hands, kissing, embracing, the whole sexual part of the marriage, arm around the shoulder, driving down the road, you put your hand on their leg, by physical touch. So it's a powerful language of love. How do we know which is our language and how can we figure out what our partner responds to? We can receive love in all five languages. That is, almost anyone would find these things to be meaningful. However, one of them typically stands out above the others. And here here are three clues uh, for yourself or for someone else. Uh, Observe their behavior. If they're always giving people pat on the back or high fives, then you may think and consider maybe that's their love language. If they're always giving gifts to people, then that may be their language. Or if they're always giving other people encouraging words. So observe their behavior and observe your own behavior. Secondly, what do they 
complain about most often. The complaint reveals the love language. If a spouse says, for example, we just don't spend any time together. I feel like we're two ships passing in the night. Mm -hmm. They're telling you quality time is their language. Or if you go on a business trip and you come home and they say, you didn't bring me anything. They're telling you (laughs) gift is their love language. Or, or, Or if they say, I don't think you would ever touch me if I didn't initiate it. They're telling you physical touch is their language. You see, we tend to get defensive if a spouse complains. Mm -hmm. But really, they're giving us valuable information. And then the third clue is, what do they request most often? If they're saying periodically, can we take a walk after dinner? Or can we uh, go out to dinner? Or do you think we could get a weekend away? They're asking you for quality time. Or if you start to go on a business trip and they say, be sure and bring me a surprise, (laughs) they're telling you that gifts is their love language. If you put those three together, Joan, observe their behavior, What do they complain about and Mm -hmm. what do they request? You can pretty well figure out a person's primary love language. Okay, so Dr. Chapman, now we figure out the love language of our partner. What can we expect to have happen? I think what happens is when we make the conscious choice to try to speak the other person's language, we begin to communicate love in a way that touches them emotionally. And their emotional love tank begins to fill up. They begin to genuinely feel loved by you. And over a period of time, their behavior begins to change, typically. Because when a person is being loved, because they so desperately need love, they are drawn to the person who is loving them. So it is a, it's a powerful way of doing, and they say it's a meaningful way of doing what you really may already be doing. You know, you, you probably are already speaking some of these languages, but if you're speaking your own language and not their language, they're not getting it emotionally. And the love languages helps you communicate love effectively. The book is The Five Love Languages by Dr. Gary Chapman. We have only touched upon this subject, so if you would like to learn more about this topic, the book, or Dr. Chapman, you can visit the website, fivelovelanguages.com, and that's the number five, fivelovelanguages.com. Dr. Chapman, thank you so much for being here. This information has saved so many relationships, and hopefully with our listeners having this knowledge, we'll save even more. So I'm so happy that you were here today to help teach us how to create loving, lasting relationships. Well, thank you, Joan. It was great to be with you. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Hi, this is Joan Herman, host of Conversations with Joan. I'm excited to announce that we're taking the show on the road, and the first stop is the New York Open Center. Please join me on Sunday, July 21st at 10 a.m. when my guest is Colleen Kelly Alexander, author of Gratitude in Motion. Colleen was hit by a multi-ton freight liner. Her body was mangled from the waist down and drained of its blood. She was resuscitated twice and remained in a coma for over five weeks. Colleen endured multiple surgeries as her body struggled to heal, but Colleen did not just survive. Today, she thrives. To honor the EMTs and medical professionals who saved her life, she has completed 50 races and 40 triathlons. Colleen is truly a miracle. I hope you'll join us. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash events. That's cyacyl.com slash events. And be sure to tune into Conversations with Joan every Sunday night at 10 p.m. right here on AM 970 The Answer. Dr. Lisa Rankin, who is here to discuss how fear and disease are linked and how fear can predispose one to illness and interrupt the healing process. Welcome, Dr. Rankin. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Joan. I'm so happy to be here. Dr. Rankin, when we think of fear, we usually equate it to an emotion that holds us back in our personal or professional life. But you say that fear is so much more than that. So in addition to being something that keeps us stuck, 
What impact does fear have on our life? Well, you know, I think, first of all, I think we have a really funny relationship with fear. A lot of people don't even realize how much it's dictating their life and making their decisions for them. You know, we, we call it stress sort of normalized it. You know, like stress is this thing that we wear like a badge of honor. Like I'm stressed, therefore I'm a valuable, productive member of society doing good, important things and making myself feel worthy. And and the reality is that a lot of the stress that we feel is really based on fear. And, you know, for example, if we say I'm stressed at work, well, really I'm afraid that I'm going to underperform and lose my stable income. Or I'm afraid that I'm going to make a mistake and one of my clients is going to be harmed. I mean, certainly as a doctor, that was one of my big stressors. You know, we, we say we're stressed in our relationships, but really we're terrified of being abandoned or of losing somebody that we love or of having one of our children get harmed. And so we wind up kind of creating this hypervigilance in the mind where we're constantly trying to protect life. And, you know, you see this, if you, if you spend any time in meditation, as I do, you know, I notice that monkey mind that is constantly thinking and planning and trying to anticipate potential future dangers so that it can come up with solutions to try to protect me from experiencing something I don't want to experience or trying to help me get something that I do want and that grasping at certainty, that grasping at the desire for protection creates these chronic repetitive stress responses in the body. And what I wrote about in my book, Mind Over Medicine, is that, you know, the body has natural self-healing mechanisms. We know this. They teach us this in medical school. It's in our physiology textbooks that every day we make cancer cells and every day we're exposed to a whole variety of pathogens that could make us sick. And every day we have broken proteins and, you know, sort of mistakes in our DNA. And this all gets repaired if the, if the body is in a functioning self-repair state. But one of the things that people don't talk about much is that emotions like fear can trigger that stress response. And every time the body is in the fight or flight stress response physiologically, which is the sympathetic nervous system, uh, you know, that, that high cortisol, high epinephrine state of, of, of physiologic stress, Every time the body is in that state, the body's natural self-healing mechanisms get turned off. And I want to say that again because people don't, don't really realize every time we have a stressed or fearful thought, we trigger the amygdala in the brain triggers a stress response that affects the entire body and turns off the body's natural self-repair mechanisms. So fortunately, the body has a natural homeostatic state, which is called the relaxation response or the parasympathetic nervous system. And whenever the body is in parasympathetic nervous system, then those self-healing mechanisms are operating properly. So I, you know, after I wrote Mind Over Medicine, I realized that there was sort of a piece missing, something that I hadn't really fully investigated. And I had this theory that fear, that, that there might be data, because Mind Over Medicine is sort of you know, it's a book for, for people like me, sort of intuitively sensed that there was a link between our emotional well-being and our physical health, but really wanted the data. So it's all the grounded scientific data. And I, but I hadn't really gone into specifically the link between fear and disease. So I kind of made a deep dive back into the, you know, the mainstream medical literature, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, trying to see, is there a link between fear and heart disease? or fear and cancer, or fear in autoimmune diseases, or fear in the common cold, and it turns out there's tons of data. So the whole, the first couple of chapters of The Fear Cure are all about my, my research uh, and all of the significant data. I mean, it's, fair, it's, not, it's not subtle. It's not subtle. The state of being in fear is killing us. And I wrote those first two chapters, and then it took me two more years to write anything else because after I wrote that, I thought, oh, my God, now I've just made everybody more terrified, and I don't know what to do. I'm a doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a spiritual teacher. Like, what am I going to say? What's, what's the solution? And so it was, you know, it was quite a journey for me writing this book. Lisa, all of the science that you're talking about, all the things that happen to us physically, when we live in this constant state of fear and experience the things that you just mentioned, is this the result of living with a scarcity mentality? I think that's a huge part of it. It's really, you know, Joan, it's really about our cultural worldview. And I didn't, 
you know, it's funny. I got I got the perfect validation of this book because I was very I, I was very um, hesitant about writing this book. I felt like I was in over my head, and I tried to get I actually tried to give my advance back to my publisher. I said I am not the person to write this book. This was a great idea, but it, I, I should not be doing this. And they kept saying, you, "You're the perfect person to write this book." Every time I talk to you, I feel less afraid. So I kept going back to it. But I had just finished writing the final draft of the, the final manuscript of The Fear Cure when two weeks later I went to 16,000 feet in the Andes in Peru. And I was staying in a hut with 10 people in a Caro village with these indigenous people of Peru that have been isolated from Western culture for 500 years. And I was there because I'm researching a future book called Sacred Medicine where I'm studying anomalous healing, these sort of spontaneous healings that happen with shamans and qigong masters and energy healers and I, I, I'm, as a doctor I'm very curious like what is that so I was up there with these shamans and I realized by witnessing and experiencing and living among their culture that they do not have the world view that we do they by all means have every reason to be more afraid than we do and they're not they don't live the way we do and it's simply because of their their worldview and we have a worldview in Western culture. Uh, in the fear cure, I call it the four fearful assumptions. We make these assumptions. We say uncertainty is unsafe, so I need to guard against uncertainty at all costs. Can't handle uncertainty, so I need to do everything I can to make my life certain. The second one is I can't handle losing what I cherish. Like, so I've got to do everything I can to protect what I cherish because if I lose it, I'm gonna, my life is going to be devastated. The third one is that it's a hostile universe. And certainly every time you look at CNN, it looks like a hostile universe, right? So we need to guard, you know, we need to create defenses to protect ourselves from ISIS and earthquakes and, you know, all of the toxins in our food and GMOs. And, you know, like, it looks like a scary universe when you look at the media. And I think the media is largely responsible for this, this particular worldview of it's a hostile universe. And the fourth one is I'm all alone, that, I, you know, I'm by myself in a hostile universe where uncertainty is unsafe and I can't handle losing what I cherish. Well, no wonder we're afraid. But the Karas have a very different view. And I had just written about this, so it was so wonderful to see that it, it actually is already happening. It's not just a concept. When I wrote about it, it was just a concept. And my, my concept was, what if we flip these four fearful assumptions around into what I call the four courage-cultivating truths by sort of tuning into their, sort of their opposite? What if it's actually more true that uncertainty is the gateway to possibility, that if we don't know what the future holds, anything could happen. If, if we're walking into the mystery, then we could have a spontaneous remission from cancer. Like, how exciting is that? You know, and maybe instead of we can't handle losing what we cherish, maybe loss is natural and can lead to growth. And every one of us can think of a time where we lost something we cherished. And we can see how our souls grew, how we became stronger and more resilient and maybe even how we were broken open into that tender, vulnerable place of the heart where we found that we were more able to live beyond the ego or the protective personality, as Sue Mortar likes to call it. I love that, the protective personality. And that by being broken open into that vulnerability of the heart, that we're able to make choices from a more soulful place because of loss. The third and the fourth courage-cultivating truths are that instead of it's a hostile universe, it's a purposeful universe that on some level everything's happening for a greater purpose and the last one is instead of i'm all alone we are all one and you know many of the great wisdom traditions and religions and the mystical teachings are are talking about this interconnectedness of all things you know now science is catching up with things like quantum entanglement where you know what if we're all one in a purposeful universe where everything happens for a reason where uncertainty is the gateway to possibility and loss is natural and leads to growth it's sort of, I mean, you can even feel the way it feels in your body when you hear that compared to the first worldview. It's just significantly more expansive. Lisa, you're talking about ways to cultivate courage, and in your book you provide exercises. Is there one that you can share with our listeners that they can try at home? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first of all, thefearcurebook.com, the website, thefearcurebook.com, has a lot of uh, guided meditations that I did with Karen Drucker that are, that are exercises themselves to bring people into the relaxation response. So these can be used anytime, especially if you're noticing like, wow, I'm feeling really afraid about something or I'm really triggered, my stress response is going off. You can literally just put on one of these free uh, downloads. It's almost two hours worth of guided meditation. 
and and that will is guaranteed to put you your nervous system into the into the relaxation response. So various forms of meditation are a great way to do that. One of the one of the ones that I particularly like, um, and I can sort of lead people through it here, is what I call the I accept meditation. And so much of our stress comes from resisting what is. Like, you know, you're in love with the guy who doesn't love you back. Well, that sucks, right? Mm. And, and you're afraid that you're not going to get what you want. And that triggers a stress response. But the reality is, if he's not in love with you, he's not in love with you. And we notice all the ways the mind will try to, you know, flip around and try to make, it, make what's true untrue and try to manipulate and control and get what you want. But there's something really peaceful about just accepting what is. And it's not about being passive. It's not about doing nothing. Because what often happens is when we kind of surrender and let go into that place of acceptance, then we're often guided into inspired action that might drive us to do something active, but it's not coming from that, I've got to get what I want, or I've got to protect what I cherish, or I've got to avoid uncertainty at all costs. It comes from more intuitive guidance, and it comes from a very peaceful place. So that the you know and i accept meditation one of the great examples of this i wrote about her in the fear cure is chris carr was 32 when she was diagnosed with an untreatable stage 4 cancer and for 10 years chris is, is a celebrity now raw foods teacher and amazing you know health buff and she's had stage 4 cancer for i think 12 years now but for 10 years she was fighting her cancer like resisting her cancer with raw foods and meditation, yoga, and all these practices. And after 10 years, she finally realized, you know what, I'm done fighting. I'm not going to keep like fighting my cancer. I've been on this journey of accepting what is, and I'm going to stop resisting my cancer. I'm going to start accepting my cancer. And she would do this meditation that was just sitting and saying, I accept, I accept. I accept what I don't like. I accept my cancer. I accept that the guy doesn't love me. I accept whatever. I accept all the things that are hard to accept. I just accept. And for the first time after 10 years of her tumors not getting better but not going, you know, not changing. They were stable for 10 years. After a year of an acceptance meditation, her tumors are half their size. I find that shocking and beautiful. It's simply by noticing where we're resisting what is and shifting into an acceptance of what is, then something starts to loosen and it opens the gateway to miracles and I'm writing the book I'm writing right now is all about the miracles that can happen in the wake of moving beyond letting fear make your decisions letting your soul take the wheel of the car of you and letting that intuitive part of you that heartful part of you choose how to live the book is the fear cure cultivating courage as medicine for the body mind and soul by dr. Lisa Rankin if you'd like to get more information about Lisa, you can visit her website, lissarankin.com. Lisa, in about 30 seconds or less, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Oh, I would love to leave you all with that peaceful feeling in your heart that comes with really trusting that there's another part of you that can protect you more than your fear, that you can trust following your heart, listening to your intuitive guidance, and trusting your soul. Lisa, thank you so much for being here with us today. I, I think that this is a wonderful reminder of what we're actually doing to ourselves. As you said, every time we have a stressed or fearful thought, we trigger a response that turns off our body's natural healing mechanisms, and we are literally making ourselves sick. So thank you for this important information and for being here to share it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for, for being with me and all of you who are listening. I just, I hold you in my heart. <laughs> Blessings to you all. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. Less than 2% of America's population volunteers to defend our nation. Though we rarely see them, we live the benefits of these heroes' sacrifices and the freedom we know and the safety we feel. 
Each and every day, the Gary Sinise Foundation serves our nation by honoring our defenders, veterans, first responders, and their families. We do this by creating and supporting unique programs designed to entertain, educate, inspire, strengthen, and build communities. The Gary Sinise Foundation has grown because the need has never been greater. Together, we'll improve the lives of thousands of American heroes and their families day in, day out, all year long. While we can never do enough to show our gratitude to our nation's defenders, our veterans, our first responders, and the families who stand by them, we can always do a little more. Join us. Visit GarySiniseFoundation.org. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Joining me is Panash Desai, a contemporary thought leader who is the author of the book Discovering Your Soul Signature A 33 Day Path to Purpose, Passion, and Joy. Panash has appeared on Super Soul Sunday with Oprah Winfrey and was featured on OWN Soul to Soul Asking Life's Big Questions. Welcome, Panash. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Panash, there are so many powerful stresses in our daily life. Unemployment is on the rise. More and more people are getting sick. The divorce rate is skyrocketing. So much of our life feels like it's out of our control. And often we forget who we really are. We live in fear. We're anxious and depressed. And many turn to substances to make themselves feel better. What do you think is happening in our society today? Why are so many lost? We live in a culture of judgment, and we've fundamentally been conditioned to move away from our natural state of being. And that's why soul signature is so timely and so important, because it's a call for us to stop perpetuating the lie and just to relax into who we've been divinely created to be, recognizing that no part of this is a mistake, that our anger and our sadness and our fear and our guilt and shame are a part of life and living, and that the more we can embrace these aspects of ourselves, the freer we become and the more our self-expression takes off and in fact what I've discovered is that at our core essence is this infinite reservoir of love and that through the embracing of all of these facets of ourselves that we've been taught are wrong or bad we can start to tap into this energy of love and allow it to inform our finances bringing promotion and increase allow it to inform our health bringing health and radiance and luminosity and allow it to inform our relationships so that we have the level of connectedness and intimacy that we truly desire. So, Panache, is this soul signature individualized to each person? Is it like having your own DNA? What does it actually mean? Our soul signature is absolutely unique. You know, it's like we all sign our name using ink. However, how we sign our name is unique to us. And in that same way, our soul signature is our unique expression in this world. And our willingness to be that furthers our life, furthers our creativity, furthers everything that we want and brings us into alignment with our heart's desire. You know, as Joseph Campbell so eloquently shared, the privilege of a lifetime is being who you are. And soul signature is an invitation to come back to our spiritual DNA, to come back to our most authentic expression so that we can be who we are and unleash the dormant potentials and gifts that have resided within us all along. So how do we discover our soul signature? Well, actually, that's why I wrote the book. Um, It's a 33-day progression. And the book was born uh, out of a question, and I was continually being asked, you know, what was your journey? You know, how can we embody this? How can we fully live this? And for me, none of us have ended up where we are overnight. You know, we're literally the sum total of how many, however many years we've been alive. And so this book is a 33-day progression, and literally the reader and the words on the page meet three times a day to start to step into self-awareness, self-acceptance, and then self-love. And literally, we start with fear and we end with love. And so it's literally a journey out of judgment into acceptance, out of fear into love, out of fear like and scarcity into abundance. Why do you believe so many people live in fear? Why do we let it stop us from accomplishing what we're here to accomplish? Fear is actually an active control mechanism that I believe is uh, employed on purpose You know, fear as an energy engages the reptilian brain. And when you look at most mainstream media outlets, the the signal that they're sending out is fear-based. And what I've discovered is that as long as we're picking up that energy, there are only two modes of being that we have available to us, fight or flight. As long as we continue to allow fear to dominate our experience, the best that we can do in life is survive. And so fear is a natural part of life and living. 
when embraced, it allows us to flourish and thrive. And so it's not fear that's the issue. It's the fact that we succumb to it, that we still haven't evolved beyond our animalistic way of dealing with this energy. And so that's why I start the book with fear, to really empower people to embrace their fear, to recognize that it's an ally, to recognize its true purpose, and to understand that when fear arises, we're being called outside of our comfort zone, and we're being propelled on into more than we could ever imagine. Is there a strategy you can offer our listeners right now that they can implement to try to eliminate some of the fear? Absolutely. When you, when you feel afraid, the first thing that stops is your breathing. It becomes very shallow. And so when you're, present, when you're present to your fear, all that's required is your willingness to breathe, to relax, and to allow the fear to wash through you. Emotions are nothing more than energies in motion. And as much as this applies to fear, it applies to sadness and anger as well. In that moment when you're triggered and these emotions arise, recognize that it's a window of opportunity for you to come into completion. Stop. Slow down and breathe and allow the fear to shake out of you, allow the tears to flow out of you, allow the anger to just move through you until it begins and ends, because literally we can experience everything inside of ourselves, and in doing so, we can end you know, our contribution to the pain quota of planet Earth. So by letting it release and wash out of you, we're breaking that fear cycle. Exactly. Consciously, when everything's embraced consciously, we naturally break every cycle. The only problem is in life that, you know, we, you know, we've never had modeled to us how to effectively deal with the parts of our humanity that we've been taught to judge and vilify. Well, you know, you talk about judging, Panache. We are so self-judgmental. I, I think we speak to ourselves in a way that we would never speak to another human being. So how can we become more self-loving and accepting? By first of all, getting to know who we are, by beginning to accept every aspect of who we are, because self-acceptance is a precursor to self-love. And so the more we actually take the time to know who we are and begin to embrace who we are, the more we begin to love who we are. And then we break this cycle you know, of need of external validation and external approval. We stop living our life from the outside in. We start living it from the inside out. Now, Panache, we hate change, and so many of us fight when it occurs. And sometimes it's positive, and sometimes it can be quite a challenge in our life. What opportunities do you believe can difficult times bring into our life? Why should we really learn to embrace change? Change is always a positive. It's only ever carrying us into more. And the reason why we resist it is because we have been conditioned to hold on to whatever our version of normal is with every fiber of our being. Even if normal is a health challenge, even if normal is a lack of financial security, even if normal are dysfunctional relationships. And so it is that, that for that reason that we must have the courage. And courage, of course, is not the absence of fear. It's acting in the face of it to move on when, when change arises and to embrace change. Because change is always leading us into more, as demonstrated by nature. The grass is always growing. The trees are always flowering and then shedding their leaves. Everything in nature is constantly evolving and expanding as is the universe. Why would that not be true for us? The part of life, it's a beautiful thing. And the more we can flow with it, the more we'll realize the expansive nature of who we are and live our best life. Panache, when we're moving through some of these difficult times in our life, how can we access the deep peace within us, no matter what type of chaos is going on in our surrounding environment? How do we find that really deep inner peace? By resting in the awareness of your breath. When you can just simply, in every moment, observe the fact that you are breathing, life becomes a living meditation and you begin to access a peace that passes all understanding. So no matter where you are, whether it be in the boardroom, whether it be in the kitchen, whether it be in the, in the uh, carpool lane, dropping off your kids, rest in the awareness of your breath. Literally, it will firmly anchor you in the moment and you'll start to access the spaciousness and the peace and the presence that's always been there. What about when we're in a rut, when life has become so mundane and so routine and we really don't feel like we have any purpose? How can we break free from that type of thought process? Well, there's no such thing as a rut. A pause isn't a mistake or a misstep. It's an opportunity for us to work everything out inside of us. Our thoughts don't create our reality. That's an absolute lie. If our thoughts created our reality, we'd be in absolute trouble. And so what I've discovered is actually our energy, that in order to shift your life, you have to change your energy in order to change your life. And where this change needs to be affected is on the emotional level, because our emotional content is informing our thoughts. 
And our emotional content is actually what keeps our personality or this illusion of separateness in place. And it's this emotional content that holds the beliefs that we hold dear in place. In the absence of this emotional content, we would simply observe the thoughts as they, as they just floated on by like clouds in the sky. And so everything is an opportunity to go deeper. And it's important now for us all to go a lot deeper because we're just scratching the surface. Panache, what strategies can you offer that sum up what we've been talking about today? There's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. You're not wrong. You don't need healing and you don't need fixing. It's time now to just relax fully into who you are and to live that unique expression instead of making yourself wrong for being different. Celebrate the fact that you are because it's that difference that allows you to be the contribution that you are here to be. Panache, in about 30 seconds or less, what would you like our listeners to leave this interview with? I love you and I thank you for loving me. Thank you so much for being here with us today and for sharing this wonderful message about rediscovering who we really are at our core and bringing that into our everyday life so that we can, as you say, find our purpose, our passion, and our joy. Thanks for having me on. We'll be right back. What else can thermography detect in your body? Hi, I'm Lisa Mack, certified clinical thermographer and founder of Lisa's Thermography and Wellness. Thermography can access heart function and may indicate inflammation in the carotid arteries, which may be a precursor to stroke and blood clots. When inflammation or occlusion of the carotid is visible, your doctor will do additional testing. Thermography may help indicate early signs of arthritis, neck and back pain. Thermal pain patterns light up white and red hot on the skin in the involved area. Dental issues, TMJ, gum disease, or an infected tooth will show up on the thermal scan white or red hot. Sinus issues and headaches, significant heat in your forehead or sinuses region revealed on the thermal scan may be indicator that these systems in your body are not functioning correctly. Immune dysfunction, fibromyalgia, and chronic fatigue. The immune system correlates to T1 and T2 areas of your spine. High levels of heat in that region may indicate immune dysfunction. On the other hand, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, and aching joints are just a few complaints that correlate to the cool patterns seen in that area. Carpal tunnel syndrome. This condition is often misdiagnosed. For instance, you may think you have CTS, yet the scan shows your neck is the referring pain from a different affected area. Digestive disorders, irritable bowel syndrome, diverticulitis, and Crohn's disease are often visible with thermography. With all these great benefits of thermography, it may sound complicated, but it's not. It is no secret that many people wait before finally deciding to move on with their lives and commence the divorce process. My name is Robert Epstein, and I'm a partner with the family law firm of Ziegler, Zemsky, and Resnick in Livingston, New Jersey. Whether because of the family and the children, financial reasons, a hope that the marriage can be saved, an overwhelming schedule that leaves no time to act on this decision, or something else, each person has a rationale for why and when they are finally prepared to move forward. A few things that you can consider doing to move forward are, number one, find the right divorce lawyer. Number two, outline your divorce goals. Number three, gather your financial documents. And number four, rely on that support system and professionals to help you get through a difficult time. With these steps in mind, hopefully you will be better prepared when the time is right to make that decision for you. For more information, please contact me at Siegler, Zemsky & Resnick, 973-533-1100 or robert at zzrlaw.com. When we think of Reiki and energy healing, most of us don't consider how it can help benefit our pet's health. Hi, this is Roxanne D'Angelo, a master healer of multiple energy healing modalities. Pets respond to Reiki just as humans do. You can use energy healing on your pets for a wide range of reasons, such as helping them cope with complications with their health, be it pain, pre and post-surgery, digestive issues, behavior, anxiety, depression, and so much more. Animals are highly intuitive beings. The practitioner will intuitively ask the animal if they would like to receive Reiki. If the pet is ready, they will respond by either sitting or lying quietly or by placing their bodies into the hands of the practitioner. When they've had enough, they will get up and reposition elsewhere. If the pet is not interested, they will simply walk away to let you know now is not the time. Once an animal has received Reiki, they will usually come back for more. They innately understand the benefits and powers of energy healing. Animals resonate 
resonate with high vibration beings because their own energy, when healthy, is of a higher vibration. Reiki can also be performed if your pet is ready to transition. This is a very difficult time for the pet owners as well. So considering having Reiki performed for both can be very comforting. Your pets will be grateful for the experience of energy healing. After all, we love our pets, and what better way to show them unconditional love than through an energy healing modality that exudes everything they are made of, which is pure love. If you'd like more information, you could reach me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com or call 201-615-0960. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Harriet Cabelli, a social worker and positive psychology coach who helps people grow through their challenges and rebuild their lives with renewed meaning and joy. Harriet is here today to discuss how we can heal through brokenness. Welcome, Harriet. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Jones. Great to be on your show. Harriet, sometimes we speak about being broken and whole in the same breath. How can we be both broken and whole? So it sounds like it's an oxymoron to be broken and whole. But the the idea being that since brokenness is is an inherent part of the human condition, because we all get broken, we are all vulnerable to pain and grief and loss, can we truly hold the brokenness? Our, our parts that are so saddened by our pain and still maintain a sense of wholeness in how we are in the world. So I want to look at this amazingly beautiful concept. It's a Japanese concept called kintsugi, K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I, kintsugi. It's a Japanese art form of repairing broken pottery with lacquer that they mix with gold or silver. And this This is a specific art form that's really transcended just an art form and been passed along into a beautiful philosophy of how we live our lives, where, again, when we have, not when, yeah, when we have, and we all have, broken parts of ourselves, it's through our healing and our our soothing, eventually, obviously with time, that we become someone different than before than before because with the healing we go through some form of transformation and that difference makes us almost more beautiful and more whole because we've experienced the kind of pain that we've had we're then open to others in their pain and when we're open to other people's pains that brings on compassion It brings on empathy and support. And therefore, that brokenness is is bringing us closer to people, and we are becoming whole from it. doesn't mean we don't also experience our sadness, but it's a way of holding that brokenness, that pain, and renewed life together. So there's a beauty in having a history of something that was painful, but then came and evolved and grew. Even if we look at the creation story in the the Old Testament, how did light, how did the world come about? It came about from darkness, from chaos. Out of darkness and chaos came light and renewal. So out of brokenness and pain, comes a sense of wholeness and beauty. Harriet, how can we heal and find that beauty through our brokenness? So it's, it's connecting with our pain and then seeing that in others and being more empathic in, in the way of connecting with other people. Because a lot of times what we've been through, we can then relate more to others and their pain. But if I can just reference something and, uh, and give a personal um, tidbit on this. Catherine Zeta-Jones, if you've ever noticed, wears oftentimes a choker. And mm-hmm. she wears a choker because she has an indentation from a tracheostomy. Because when she was a baby, she had a trach, and that leaves an indentation in your neck. She says, 
I wear, quote, I wear it as a badge of courage. My middle daughter went through a medical crisis, and she had a trach, and she has a hole, that indentation in her throat. And I remember my mother at some point saying, have plastic surgery so you can close it up so it won't look bad. And I remember telling my mother at that time, quoting from Miss Jones and saying, no, my daughter, her name is Nava, is going to wear it as a badge of courage, meaning that's her broken, if I may use that word, her broken space, literally. There was mm-hmm. a hole. And then around that grew skin, grew a new beauty of strength, of endurance of resilience, of ability to, of, of, of the wherewithal to say, look what I went through. I'm here. I'm proud of it. I'm reengaged with life and I'm giving of myself. And people are seeing this and seeing hopefully that th- there's inspiration here. We don't have to break literally at our breaking point. We can grow through it and stand strong and put ourselves out there. And Leonard Cohn has a, had a great line. He says, there's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. So we can hold both our brokenness and our wholeness together, and our brokenness can give us, albeit in a new form, a whole new way, of a whole new way of being whole and beautiful. Harriet, thank you so much for being here with us. If you would like to learn more about this topic, if you'd like to learn more about Harriet and her work, you can visit her website, rebuildlifenow.com. And as always, to hear more from Harriet, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Harriet. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.